The gospel is beautiful, and the gospel, the gospel generates peace, peace with God, the peace of God, peace among God's people, the Father of lights, delights in his children, and the, the Father of lights delights in his children being at peace with one another. You know, after, so after the, this uh, first sermon in the sermon series, a lady came up to me and said, got a, got a quote written down in my Bible that says, Christians who are at war with one another will never be at peace with their heavenly father. And that's, that's, the, that's, that's the burden of this sermon series, an, an earnest appeal to preserve and promote true peace within the body of Christ. And I, I ask you, uh, at the beginning of this particular sermon, I ask you to bear with me, because this, this, is, a, this is a heavy sermon today. Uh, last week's uh, will seem much lighter <laughs> after you've heard this one. A couple was telling me this morning that they listened to last week's sermon two times uh, over the course of the week, and they might, they might want to listen to this one three times. Um, so let's, uh, let's pray and ask, ask for God's help. Father, I, I pray that you would grant all of us humble repentance and the humble and gracious capacity to walk in peace with our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to get right to the point. Speak directly with the person with whom you are having conflict and do so as quickly as possible. The entire sermon is about that and driving that home. You see, the, the, by the way, if you want to flip to Ephesians 4, I'm going to start there and then I'm going to be all over the Bible this morning, all over the New Testament. But you see, the way that forbearance works, last week we talked about humbly, gently, patiently, bearing with one another in love. And the, the great thing about forbearance, about bearing with one another in love, is that it prevents a thousand conflicts from ever erupting in the first place. You see, all of our, all of our flaws, all of our shortcomings, all of our blind spots, all of our sins represent potential conflicts. But forbearance, gracious, warm-hearted forbearance, prevents a lot of conflict from ever getting off the ground because we are resolved in our own heart to graciously roll with all of the challenges around us. But the thing is, is that there are times when something more than forbearance is required. Uh, when, when, when forbearance is not enough. And that's what I want to get into today. There, there, I, can, I can envision at least four situations, there may be more, but at least four situations in which something more than forbearance is required in order to preserve, promote, or restore peace among God's people. The, the, the first reason is simply that your capacity to graciously forbear is reaching its limit. 
and you are unable to patiently bear with your brother or sister any longer. Perhaps if you were more mature in your walk, you would be able to. But the fact of the matter is, is that you find yourself unable. They're, they're, they're grating against you, rubbing you the wrong way. The, the hurt is too much, and you obviously you can't let it go. Maybe you should let it go, but you can't let it go. You've got to do something. Reason number two, another person has sinned or seems to have sinned and you're obligated to address it. Reason number three, another person charges that you have sinned or seems to have sinned and you're obligated to address it. Or a fourth reason is that you, you, you may have a sharp disagreement or a heated dispute with someone and some form of resolution must be sought. A sharp disagreement or heated dispute may or may not involve a specific sin. For example, at the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement about whether or not to take John Mark with them on the next missionary journey. They, they obviously were, were openly discussing it, and the disagreement between them was so sharp that they realized that each was unable to put up with the other's desired course of action. So instead of remaining together, Barnabas went one way with John Mark, and Paul went another way with Silas. <clears throat> now, in giving you those four reasons when something more than forbearance is required, I admit that, I, that I'm painting with broad brushstrokes this morning, okay? But for the sake of the peacemaking tactic that I want to highlight, I'm throwing all of these situations into the same bucket. Not because they're all the exact same situation, okay? Um, having a sharp disagreement with someone is not the same thing as having sinned or been sinned against, and that's not the same thing as simply being so bothered to the point where you're unable to put up with someone any longer. But for the purposes of this morning's message, I'm throwing these things into the same bucket because I want to drive home one basic, very simple, and routinely ignored peacemaking tactic, which is to speak directly with the person with whom you are having conflict, actual conflict, apparent conflict, budding conflict. Speak to the person with whom you're having conflict and do so as quickly as possible. Address the problem head-on by interacting directly with the relevant person or relevant people with whom you are having the problem. If there is some barrier to peaceful fellowship between you and a fellow believer, then make every effort to remove that obstacle in order to restore fellowship. Now, in order to kind of have an on-ramp onto this discussion, I want to start in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, which says, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Of course, we are supposed to be slow to anger right? James 1.19. But in Ephesians 4.26 and 27, Paul envisions a situation in which anger begins to get some traction in your heart. And it is important to clearly state 
that the, the rise of anger in your heart is not necessarily sinful. The instruction to be angry and do not sin assumes that it is possible to have righteous anger that does not lead you into sin. In fact, it is profoundly right to be angry at wickedness. However, Paul's instruction also assumes that the anger that is rising in your heart needs to be diffused or relieved quickly. In other words, anger, even if it is righteous in its inception, anger will not age well in your heart. If the anger is allowed to fester, smolder, gnaw away at your mind, then you are essentially inviting the devil to have breakfast with you the next morning. And that never goes well. Thus the instruction to not let the sun go down on your anger must be taken with utmost seriousness because if, if the sun goes down on your anger, then the sun's going to rise on your anger and there the devil prowling around like a roaring lion is ready to pounce. Now, as far as Paul's instruction goes in verse 26, there is more than one possible way to defuse your anger before the sun goes down. Going, going back to verse, verse 2 of Ephesians 4, which we looked at last week, you might be able to resolve the anger through the act of forbearance. You, you might be able to step back, take a deep breath, see what's going on in the larger perspective of, of, of God's grace and God's mercy and God's work in that person's life. And you just, you're able to relax and you're able to genuinely let it go. And from that moment forward, it's, it's water off the duck's back and you have a good night of rest. Anger gone. On the other hand, another way to defuse your anger before the sun goes down is to make a phone call or arrange for a meeting with the person that is anger, that, that, that has angered you. And maybe simply touching base with the person or having the issue clarified will immediately defuse your anger. You know, you've gotten something off your chest. You've had a connection and you feel better about it. Or maybe what will be required is the forgiveness that is mentioned in verse 32, right? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So you, you want to be, be cultivating that forgiving spirit. But you may also need to have a conversation with the offending party as soon as possible in order to be reconciled, extend forgiveness, and restore the relationship. It may, of course, be very messy, and, and you're going to need all humility and gentleness, verse 2. You're going to need kindness and tenderheartedness, verse 32. But it is far better than giving an opportunity to the devil, the devil wants to entrap us in a web of accusation, bitterness, and broken fellowship. Our Lord wants to bless us with free grace, forgiveness, and steadfast love throughout the church family. Who is on the Lord's side? Now turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 4. I want to put some specific passages in front of us that push us toward those hard conversations when one Christian has sinned against another believer and we need to take action. In, in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 4, Jesus is urging us to take sin with utmost seriousness. 
And he says, at the beginning of chapter 17, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, I'm primarily interested in verses 3 and 4 at the moment, but I want to mention verses 1 and 2. In these verses, Jesus is telling us to have a principled opposition to sin. Sin is utterly destructive to the sinner and everyone that the sinner is influencing. So Jesus tells us three ways to make war against sin. First, make every effort not to tempt or provoke others to sin, verses 1 and 2. Second, confront your fellow Christian when he or she sins, verse 3. And third, forgive your fellow Christian when he or she repents, verses 3 and 4. And, and just, just think about this in terms of the, the beauty of the gospel. Jesus, our faithful shepherd, is on a mission to rescue us from sin. That's why he came, to deliver us from our sin. And there's that initial deliverance when the good shepherd finds us lost and he brings us home and there's conversion and there's forgiveness and there's justification and there's peace with God. But then there's that, there's that ongoing work of the great shepherd to rescue us from the, the practical effect of sin in our everyday lives. Jesus wants all of us to make progress, to grow from the heart, to grow in holiness and to sin less, right? And as part of the good shepherd's ministry to us, his weak and sin-prone sheep, Jesus appoints his people to be ministers of grace one to another. You, you, you have to see this as the ministry of grace. If I may borrow a concept that I've learned from author Paul Tripp. You see, what this is, this, this whole idea of like confronting a brother when he sins, it's not, you know, getting, getting the artillery and starting to come hard against your brother. Instead, it's one person in need of grace ministering to another person in need of grace. Every single person in here is in desperate need of grace. Everyone. The the, the ministry that Jesus is talking about here, it's not fleshly. It's not self-righteous. It's not proud. It's not graceless. It's full of grace. It's full of love. The desire all along is for there to be forgiveness and reconciliation and warm-heartedness and peace. That's always the goal. Now notice, notice a few things about verses 3 and 4. Jesus said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. He didn't say... If your brother sins, be shocked and dismayed that such a thing could ever happen. 
it's really good to have a robust doctrine of total depravity. Don't, 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 don't be surprised or shocked or dismayed when someone sins. We all do. doesn't mean it's okay. It just means that this is the common lot. We're a sinful people. We're prone to wander and leave the God we love. Jesus also didn't say, if your brother sins, be sure to tell your close friends about it. He didn't say anything about that. How sad when a person learns that his failures and faults on account of his own weakness as a sinner or his perceived faults and failures have been broadcast to others by someone who was upset. Never, never should have happened. What Jesus tells us to do is if your brother sins, rebuke him. Or in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The, 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 that's Matthew 18, 15. The goal is not to publicize your brother's sin, but to pour out grace upon him. You want to gain your brother or sister in the dignity of a private conversation characterized by brotherly love. You want your brother to come clean, be cleansed, have his sin covered, and then have the whole matter wonderfully forgotten. Fresh start, clean, clean slate. Another obvious thing from verses 3 and 4 should be noted. The sin is not being swept under the rug. The sin is not being glossed over. The sin is being clearly identified. The one who is sinning is owning up to it. And the one who, who is sinned against is extending forgiveness. Confrontation, repentance, and forgiveness are worlds apart from pretending that a problem doesn't exist or speaking in vague generalities and offering and accepting a superficial apology that frankly never acknowledges the real issue. Dig deep. Speak clearly. Get to the bottom of it and discover an abundance of grace. Now it's obvious in, in Luke 17 verses 3 and 4 and Matthew 18 15 that love is the motivating factor of the corrective action. You want to win your brother and convey forgiveness to him. The motivation is not to give your brother a piece of your mind or to tear him down. The motivation is not to shame him or belittle him or humiliate him or tell him how bad he is. The Lord loves your brother or sister. The Lord is sending you as an instrument of his grace in order to bring grace and healing into your brother's or sister's life. Your brother or sister is in God's workshop. Remember? God's workshop, sanctification and process, handled with great care. Your, your goal is not to, to score a personal victory. Your goal is not to settle a score, but to win your brother. Further, gentleness must govern your approach. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual. That's Galatians 6.1. What do you think you who are spiritual means? Well, you just go back a few verses, right? To be spiritual means to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23, to be spiritual means you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Don't attempt to correct someone if what you really want to have happen is to have their head chopped off. Don't attempt to correct someone if you have the log of anger protruding from your critical eye. 
Because then when you get close to your brother or sister to remove the speck out of their eye, you're going to bang them with that, with that big log that's coming out of your eye. You hypocrite, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, first take the log out of your own eye. That would, that would include anger, bitterness, vengeance, unforgiveness, all of it, gone. <laughs> You're not qualified to address someone else's sin if that's what's going on in your heart. You're a, you're a representative of the, of the Lord. You're a, a, a representative of his grace. Who sees clearly? Who sees clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye? The one who is spiritual, the one who's exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, the one whose sense of well-being is in the Lord and therefore is free to demonstrate love to someone who doesn't deserve it. And nobody deserves it. The whole thing runs on grace. So if someone is, so if someone is, has sinned or someone has sinned or sinned against you, you have a responsibility to graciously take corrective action. Now turn to Matthew chapter five, verses twenty-three and twenty-four, because there, Jesus envisions another situation um, that's different than the one I've already been talking about. Here, the situation is not that someone else has sinned against you, but rather that you are aware that someone else has something against you. In other words, you are aware that someone else has a complaint against you, a grievance against you. You're aware that someone else has been offended by you. And now, what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so this, this brings the responsibility full circle, doesn't it? Whose responsibility is it to seek reconciliation? The offended party or the offended party? The answer is yes. Yes. Of course, the offending party cannot seek reconciliation if he is unaware that someone else has something against him. It's an, it's an impossibility. But there are times that you will sense that someone has an issue with you or you'll, you'll find out one way or another that somebody does. And when that happens, you must seek reconciliation as quickly as possible. Just uh, a few months ago, I, I, I was uh, expressed agreement with a, with a course of action and I completely failed to take into account someone who is going to be affected by that decision. And this came to my attention, that this, this person was hurt. And so it wasn't too long before I, I, went, I went to her, and I, I just acknowledged that I was wrong. I was wrong for not taking her into account. You know, it's interesting because a little bit before that, I preached a sermon God sees you. God sees you. But sometimes I don't see you. Sometimes we don't see each other. Sometimes we fail to take each other into account. And you know what? I couldn't really fix, because I, I couldn't really fix the situation. It was just, you know, the horse was out of the gate. But she was genuinely appreciative that I came to her and apologized meant a lot to her. Now, Ephesians 4 told us to address 
our own sin before the anger, to address our own anger before the sun goes down. And Matthew 5 tells us to address the other person's anger before you offer your gift at the altar of worship. Obviously, these are priorities in our Lord's mind. First, be reconciled to your brother. Don't go to your brother in a, in a spirit of defensiveness or resentment, but with a genuine desire to hear your brother and make peace with him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew 5, 9. If someone else is upset or unsettled on my account, then I ought to pursue that person's well-being by seeing to it that my relationship with that person gets ironed out as soon as possible. So both the offended party and the offending party have a responsibility to pursue peace. Now, thus far, this may seem all neat and tidy. The offended party rebukes the offending party, the offending party repents, and the offended party extends forgiveness. Or the offending party seeks out the offended party, makes amends, and the two are reconciled. Now, that's really smooth on paper. People are not as smooth as paper. I am not as smooth as paper, and neither are you. So I want to talk a little bit about, about this, the, the messiness of it all. Okay, Sometimes these interactions can be very messy. And here's the thing I want to impress upon you. The attempt to be reconciled must take place within the context of honoring the truth. And frankly, being the sinners that we are, sometimes two people who are at odds with one another are unable to, to agree upon the facts of the case. At other times, the two people who were at odds may come to realize that their supposed conflict was much ado about nothing. Have you ever, have you ever been apprehensive about a difficult conversation that you had to have? And just after a few minutes into the conversation, the whole thing is resolved. <laughs> Mutual love is affirmed. The two of you are at peace. You envisioned this big fight ahead, and yet you quickly realize that there is no animosity, no ill will, no arrogance, and the reconciliation comes easy. This reminds me of that fly that went by. I think uh, I was thinking about this, how fitting this is, and it also little brings a little light moment to a heavy sermon. Mike McClintock wrote this wonderful book about the fly that went by, and let me just summarize it for you from later in the book. The fly ran away in fear of the frog, who ran from the cat, who ran from the dog. The dog ran away in fear of the pig, who ran from the cow. She was so big, the cow ran away from the fox, who ran as fast as he could in fear of the man. The man heard a thump, and away he ran. It was just a sheep with an old tin can, and the sheep... Didn't mean any harm, he just wanted help. The whole thing was a big misunderstanding. And the truth of the matter is, and this is one of the reasons why you need to speak to each other where there's apparent conflict. Because I'm confident that many times our, our imagination's eye has misperceived or blown wildly out of proportion what's actually going on. And in five minutes... You'd be healed. It doesn't always work that way, but sometimes it does. So one practical benefit of addressing conflict is that silly misperceptions can evaporate in the noonday light of truth. 
But there are other times when reconciliation does not come easy. And the reason it doesn't come easy is because the two of you don't even agree on what happened. And here it is, here again, it's so important to interact directly with the person with whom you have conflict because often your perception of the other person or your perception of the conflict are not accurate. Theirs may not be either. It should come as no surprise that misperceptions and misunderstandings happen among sinners on a regular basis. As long as you dig in your heels on your own perception of a conflict and you refuse to sort it out with a rigorous commitment to the truth, then, then to that degree you are at risk of believing distortions, believing lies, and believing the misrepresentations that have been formed in your mind. The commitment to honor the truth must never be sidelined in our reconciliation efforts. The, the instruction uh, for correction and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. That, that biblical instruction assumes that the truth is being spoken and that accurate perceptions of reality are being maintained and that God's standard of righteousness is being honored. And this stands in contrast to the way of the world. You can look out at the world and see how they deal with conflict, pressure, manipulation, guilting and shaming people, pressuring people. This, this, this demanding of apologies because I was outraged. You owe me an apology. And, and so often these apologies take place. They're totally superficial. It's a bunch of political speak. And it's all for show. That's not the kind of peace we're called to pursue. The kind of, the kind of peace that we're called to pursue is not severed from the truth but must cohere with the truth. Right before telling us, be angry and do not sin, in Ephesians 4.26, Paul wrote, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, Ephesians 4.25. Over in Colossians 3, before telling the, the believers to bear with one another and to forgive one another, just a few verses earlier, Paul told them in Colossians 3, 9, and 10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Listen, anytime reconciliation supposedly takes place on the foundation of a lie, somebody lies to keep the peace. That is a house of cards. And that piece is going to come crashing down sooner or later. Okay? Remember these words from the Proverbs. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. Proverbs 12, 17. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs 12, 19. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Proverbs 12, 22. When an offended party and an offending party come together in conversation in order to sort out an issue, both parties must be rigorously committed to the truth. Each party must humbly recognize that his own perception of the conflict might in fact be a misperception. The offended party should be genuinely open to the possibility that he misunderstands what was done or said. Perhaps his offense took place because he misconstrued what happened. 
Likewise, the offending party should be genuinely open to the possibility that his understanding of what happened is faulty. Perhaps his, perhaps his imagined innocence is wishful thinking, and he really needs to face up to the truth. Both the offended party and the offending party must strive to be wise. And wise people are, by definition, humble and teachable. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice Proverbs 12, 15. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feeds on folly. Proverbs 15, 14. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 15, 31 to 33. None of this can be ignored in the process of addressing conflict. As important as emotions are, emotions do not establish the truth. The offended party's emotions are not a solid basis for the offending party's repentance. If the offending party is to repent, it must be because he's actually sinned. It must be because he's actually violated God's standard. The the truth must be sought after and honored. Both parties must be willing to humbly listen and humbly consider and humbly learn as the other person speaks. Remember, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and cross-examines him. Proverbs 18, 17. The first person to cross-examine you might be the person that you are confronting. Welcome it. The jewel of peace is far too precious to be obtained by a lie. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Proverbs 21, verse 6. You can be sure that a superficial reconciliation that is the result of manipulation, pressure, distortion of facts, hyped-up emotion is essentially sweeping the real issues under the carpet, and it will prove to be a short-lived peace that will come back to bite you. Don't settle for cheap peace. Aim for genuine reconciliation, which requires not only sincerity of heart, but submission to truth. And remember, if you attempt reconciliation with a vengeful or grudge-bearing or hateful spirit, you cannot see clearly. Matthew 7, Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. You cannot see your brother clearly. You cannot see your brother's fault clearly. You cannot see the truth clearly. All you can see is your own self-righteousness, which makes you utterly unable to gently restore a brother or sister. Learn the grace of seeking peace within a shared commitment to the truth. And the sooner, the better. As with any of us, given time, all of us are going to be on the receiving end, or should be on the receiving end of rebuke. And so we ought to all cultivate a humble mindset that regards a rebuke as an act of love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Proverbs 27 verse 5. Don't hide your love for me. Demonstrate it by rebuking me. After all, what does the next verse say in Proverbs 27, 27, 6? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. An enemy feigns affection to you as part of a larger strategy to tear you down. Friends, don't watch a brother or sister travel down the path of self-destruction without doing their best to intervene, warn, help, plead, pray, rescue. Are you a good friend? Are you a good friend? A friend loves at all times, and a friend will wound you with rebuke for your good with the intent of treating the wound with the oil of grace. The goal of addressing conflict is not to prop yourself up and tear others down. It's not to get your way. If that's the goal you hope to achieve, God will not bless your efforts, and your sin will find you out. The goal of addressing conflict is to get grace to the offending party, love to the offended party, healing to the relationship, and strength to the whole community. Now, take this to heart, because I want to challenge you this morning. Take this to heart. Refusing to address conflict prevents grace from getting to the offended party, prevents love from getting to the offended party, prevents healing to the relationship, and weakens the whole community. Is that what you want? To be honest, I admire people who address issues speedily. I'm learning to appreciate forthright, frank, sometimes even blunt conversation. It is very helpful. Jared and I, have, we, got a, we have a really good relationship We've been, we've been at it for about six years now. And I'll tell you, one, a big reason why we have strong relationship is because Jared is the kind of person, if he's bothered by something, if something's bugging him, if he has a concern, if he has a question, something's really rubbing him the wrong way, and it, it, it somehow relates to me, man, he, he does not let it fester. He, he tells me. He sends me an email, makes a phone call. A lot of conversations on the phone. We'll meet, meet for pizza and talk something out. We've done this many times over the last six years, and that's why we have a strong relationship, or a big reason why. And guess what? If, if, he, if you took all those, all, those, all those concerns, all those rubbing the wrong way kind of things, all those unanswered questions, instead of having a healthy relationship, he would just be frustrated with me. He's not frustrated with me because we're constantly talking stuff out. In the fall, the elders made a decision that seemed to one person to represent a policy shift. Now, I have to speak in very general terms because I have no, no interest in revealing the name of the person. But the decision seemed to represent a policy shift in this person's mind. And it kind of raised in this person's mind the possibility that our decision represented favoritism to some people and showing that we had a, had a problem with other people. And this person did the courageous thing. This person wrote me a letter, clearly setting forth the concern. And it was done graciously and respectfully, but laying out this person's heart before us what they were struggling with, <clears throat> what they were struggling with. And uh, this gave the elders 
and I an opportunity to speak to this person, to, 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 to write back and to clarify the issues. In, in fact, in this particular clay, place, this person had misperceived what had happened. But the interaction had to take place in order to set this person's mind at ease. How many people don't get an issue sorted out or don't get a question answered in their mind because they never speak directly to the person with whom they have the concern? Last October, we had a special emphasis worship service in which we made a big deal about explaining our elders in training the expansion of our elders in training program and bringing Aaron and Adrian into, the, into that. And just a few days later, the elders received a lengthy letter expressing all kinds of concerns with the action that we had taken. And I took a lot of time with that letter, and I gave a thoughtful gracious response, trying to explain the issues and put in a larger perspective and send it to them. And you, you know, you know uh, see, the, the beauty of this is that service took place on a Sunday, and they were really worked up about it. Sent us a letter on Thursday. They got an answer on Friday, a, a long response, gracious, thoughtful response on Friday. And then they wrote back after the response and said that that our response helped reduce a huge spiritual uneasiness in their hearts. And you know what really stinks? When people have huge spiritual uneasiness in their hearts and they never share it. And so it can never be addressed. How many people don't have the benefit of being heard, of having their concerns thoughtfully interacted with, and having some important issues clarified for them because they never speak directly to the person or the people with whom they have the conflict? Brothers and sisters, I challenge you today. The examples I just gave, and I could give more examples from right here in our own church family, Show the value of speaking directly with the person with whom you have the actual or apparent or budding conflict and doing so as quickly as possible. What keeps you from doing the very same thing? We are a family of believers. You know how to get a hold of each other. You know, you know each other's phone numbers and email addresses and physical addresses and meet every Sunday here in the building are you unwilling to demonstrate the humility of showing yourself to be the sort of person who has issues with another person? It's nothing to be afraid of. Are you unwilling to trust the Lord with the uncertainty of how the other person will respond? Are you unwilling to be a conduit of grace to a fellow sinner? If your concern is tied to a misperception, are you unwilling for your misperception to be corrected? When you refuse to speak promptly with the person with whom you have conflict, you need to understand. You need to understand that you are in the process of making a big mess. When you refuse to deal with relational conflict, you cheat a brother or sister out of the opportunity to repent and grow. 
When you refuse to deal with relational conflict, you cheat a brother or sister out of the opportunity to clarify an issue that you may presently misunderstand. And you cheat yourself out of the opportunity to have the issue clarified for you. When you refuse to deal with relational conflict, you cheat yourself out of the opportunity to show grace, kindness, and forgiveness to a brother or sister. And what can be more at the heart of walking with Jesus than showing grace to a fellow sinner? What's at the heart of the church? The grace of Christ, the grace of the gospel. You should look at relational conflict as an opportunity to pour out grace on people that Jesus loves. Oh, how our minds play deceitful tricks on us and get us all worked up. When you refuse to deal with relational conflict, you cheat the other person and yourself and the whole church family out of the benefit that would come from you and your brother or sister being on good terms. Because every strong relationship in the body of Christ strengthens the whole body, and every weak relationship in the body of Christ represents a vulnerability. When you refuse to deal with relational conflict, you cheat yourself out of the opportunity to get rid of anger before the sun goes down and to keep short accounts with your brothers and sisters. Do you know what happens when an issue goes unaddressed? You are basically in the process of constructing a log in your own eye. And you will not see that brother or sister clearly through the eyes of grace. And no wonder, by not addressing the issue in the first place, you're not being gracious. You're not graciously seeking the other person's rescue and the restoration of the relationship. And then another issue will surface. And over time, the complaints, grievances, and offenses will multiply and compound, none of them having been addressed. Any one of those issues might have been addressed in 10 minutes. Ah, There could have been repentance, forgiveness, clarifications, and encouragements along the way, but it never happened. And now you have a mountain of unaddressed issues. Let me tell you a parable inspired by an analogy that I heard one time. You know how glasses or ceramic plates and bowls can break so easily and shatter in many pieces on your dining room or kitchen floor? Well, listen, you can, you can break one glass or ceramic vessel every day. And in a normal household setting, when a plate or a glass breaks, you stop what you're doing. You tell everyone to keep their distance from the broken pieces. It's a danger area, and you clean it up. You sweep up the broken pieces. Maybe you wet a paper towel to make sure you get all those little pieces up. And very quickly, it's cleared away, and it's safe. For little feet again. You can break one glass or ceramic vessel every single day. And if you're always prompt at cleaning it up, the house is always safe. But just imagine what happens when a glass breaks, no one cleans it up. And then a ceramic plate breaks and no one cleans it up. And then a ceramic bowl breaks and no one cleans it up. And then a glass pitcher breaks and no one cleans it up. And the house is no longer safe. Now listen carefully. The problem is not the number of glasses and vessels that were broken. That is not the problem. The problem is the number of broken glasses and vessels that were not cleaned up. And that's exactly how it is in the body of Christ. Do not be deceived. 
Do not be deceived. The number of sins and offenses in the body of Christ is never the problem. The problem is always unaddressed sins and offenses. Start today. Maybe you have allowed too many complaints and offenses to go unaddressed. There is grace for that also. Repent of the refusal. Repent of the refusal to address issues. Receive God's grace and make a fresh start today, a fresh start of dealing with issues. Make a small but intentional beginning. Pick up that broom and sweep one area of broken glass. Begin to reclaim lost ground. Who knows? You might even inspire a few others to join you. If the fruit of this sermon is thoughtful, gracious, letters being written and sent and answered, or phone calls being made, or meetings and personal conversations take place, then we will be on the right track. And remember, the deliberate aim of every letter, phone call, or personal meeting must be to give and receive grace, to bless and build up, to heal and restore fellowship, and always keep the instruction of our Lord in mind. And I close with these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 13 to 24. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, all of us are sinners in need of grace who remarkably are called to help other sinners who are also in need of grace. I pray that that grace of Christ, that mercy of the gospel would fill our hearts, fill our community, fill our conversations, and I pray that you would bring healing and strengthening wherever it is needed, that brothers and sisters would dwell joyfully together in unity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.